Case file number 5.02, the infamous 2600, observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw, still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief, you, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one, the other one, Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Emir, what does the number 2600 mean to you? 2600? Um, nothing off the top of my head. Well, I thought you were going to say something like the Atari 2600, but that might even be a that, little that, bit that more. Yeah. yeah, we had one, but 2600 is an important number in the hacker world uh, because of the 2600 hertz tone that was instrumental to early freaking. Mm-hmm. AT&T long distance lines would use the 2600 tone to signify whether a line was in use or it was open. So if you had a blue box of one of the original freaking toys, and we're not going to go into how all that worked in this episode. I want to do a really good episode on phone freaking at some point. Right, right. Um, but I didn't do a ton of it back when it was a thing like i just barely knew about it and that was so long ago that i really want to get it right but the blue box was one of the first freaking devices and what it did was you could make a long distance call to like a toll-free line something that would hopefully do something automatic from what i understand and hang up and when it hung up you played the 2600 tone and it would basically connect you as if you were still calling toll-free, but you could dial a number after it and get connected uh, via long distance for free. Oh, okay. You have to remember, this was back in the analog phone days where everything was done through signals through the, through the lines that were in the same data channel as the actual voice. Right, right. Going to Hackers the Movie, their uh, razor and blade on their thing showed their tape recording a uh, uh, putting $10 worth of quarters into a, into a payphone and playing it back mm-hmm. because the payphones sent tones to the central office that yeah. they had been paid. That's how all of this worked. So you can understand why, why this would happen. Part of the reason that 2600 is such a big deal is that in the sixties, a guy named John Draper, figured out that you could make the 2600 tone using a whistle from a, from a box of Captain Crunch cereal. Isn't John Draper the name of that guy? Um, no, Don Draper. Oh, okay. okay. His brother. No, no. Yeah. Not. <laughs> One of them's fictional. So from then on, John Draper's handle, what he's been known at has been Captain Crunch. Mm, okay. Now I should probably mention in about 2017 or so, 
John Draper was accused by a lot of hacking conventions, and he'd been a speaker at a lot of them over decades of basically sexual misconduct. After reading out about it, I think we can say without any equivocation, mm-hmm. he made a number of people uncomfortable and was asked okay. to basically never come back. Okay. There hasn't been any lawsuits. And there's been some people kind of defending him. But I think that we can say, but like for the seminal work that he that he did and other stuff that he's done since, there is some pushback to his long-term legacy. Okay. Didn't do enough to look into any evidence on any of this. I had vaguely heard about it. It never ended up being a thing in my life. But right, yeah. DEFCON has... Uh, basically straight out of a soccer or yellow and red card system for people feeling comfortable that if I remember correctly came out around that time. And I'm all about that because uh, like everybody should feel comfortable there. And if we want people other than the stereotype showing up at those events, we need to be better people about (laughs) making sure everybody's welcome. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, there is um, and has been for a long time a hacker magazine it's now still digital they still publish called 2600 the hacker quarterly okay. it started in 1984 by a guy named eric corley his pen name is emmanuel goldstein i couldn't find that he had a handle which was interesting to me but as is tradition on this podcast if you have a handle we will call you by it <laughs> if you have an alias we will call you by it it was one of the publications that really began to cement the whole hacker culture. And that was for real. We talk about hackers being all about exploration of information. And there's the stereotype of hackers trying to break everything. And the reality in my experience is gray is relatively gray in the middle. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and I mean, I think this is important for the story we're going to get to is that there's a lot of exploration. There's a lot of being within the lines. There's some stepping over the lines, but doing it for good reasons, mm-hmm. like part of a moral framework that other people agree with. This is right to repair stuff and vulnerability disclosure stuff. Right, right, right. And then there's actually like doing it for personal profit mm-hmm. or to cause people problems. And it's hard to say that not all of that, all of that doesn't go under the same umbrella. Right. But the spirit of exploration, the spirit of not being confined by the information presented to you and the willingness to explore and listen to other people's work and do that work without like official sanction, without the blessing of the powers that be and kind of moving forward without without any expectation of approval is, I think, the central to all of this and what hacking really comes down to. So the 2600 quarterly, they also sponsored some of the, one of the early hacker conventions, uh, Hackers on Planet Earth, the Hope Conference. It's held in New York every two years and in starting in 1994. It's the Big East Coast Con. There's a lot going on there. I encourage any listener who's there. I believe the next one is next year in 2023 to try and make it. And they have meetups which I also encourage folks to, to maybe look into monthly meetups all over the U S and in the, in the UK, in Sweden, in Russia, and in Ireland. Okay. These are not full cons, just meetups. 
Now we're going to talk about a meetup that happened in 1992. Okay. I'm going to first tell you the way I heard it in line at DEF CON. <laughs> the first time I ever heard about this. So we're talking, and I don't remember about what, but I do remember that somebody who had been in longer than me, and I think this is one of the early cons that I had gone to. Um, I mean, I was still a pro engineer, but like a lot of hacker culture stuff hadn't really made it to me because I was in the bubble of the man. Right. Um, and I'm still kind of in the bubble of the man. A lot of this is, is I feel like an anthropologist more than a participant, but, but he was saying that there was this meeting of the 2600 club and the secret service and the FBI were like using these distance listening microphones and stuff in the mall. And that there were people from the meetup hackers that were using similar techniques to like telephoto lenses to take pictures of the, um, of the law enforcement agents oh, and really? like, okay. like that, that our heroes, the hackers were doing unto the, uh, unto the Leos as they had been done unto mm, okay. that they were in fact, not just victims of an incident, but participants in what was going on. I thought that would make a great episode. <laughs> and I started doing some research. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out there's an organization called uh, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, EPIC. Okay. We'll get into why they're important to this story at the end. But important for me and the research, the episode you're hearing now, is that as part of what they ended up doing, they have what I feel is the definitive record, contemporaneous record of what happened, at least from the hacker side. Uh, They have a bunch of emails going back and forth between the Computer Underground Digest and Emmanuel Goldstein, as well as accounts from individual participants, all written up in a very long email. And a lot of what the story comes from is exactly this because it is contemporaneous reporting from folks from multiple participants and Mm -hmm. it hasn't been disputed and the stuff was even verified by other journalists in fact one of them uh, one of the articles that uh that i ran across is in was published by the washington post about six days after this happened oh really okay yeah it's been reported on i wouldn't necessarily say extensively but it's but non-trivially there are reporters that did their own research both in the narrow industry com daily and uh news bites i believe was it was the other uh publication that was like actively involved in reporting on this but uh, the washington post as well so this happened on friday november 6th in the pentagon city mall in dc Mm, okay now, this is 1992. The internet as we know it, as we talked about previously, happened in 1995 when everybody got their AOL coaster discs and joined one ISP or another. At this point, I mean, this is 92, Mosaic wasn't really even in wide use. If you were on the internet, you had email and you had Usenet. Mm-hmm. And you probably had it through a university. Um, whether you were an enthusiast or an academic, or you had it through like the government through yeah. that mill or something like that. This was well before cell phones with cameras. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The fact that this information was captured is 
in some part thanks to that because again all of these things are strung together emails mm -hmm. right, right, right. yeah and their .edu accounts in the in those emails <laughs> so also as far as the law enforcement was concerned they had very little technical sophistication they didn't know very much about hackers or the hacking hacker community at all we hadn't even started to have any of the black hat white hat conferences like defcon and hope and stuff like that hope was still two years away the summer cons we talked about in the cult of the dead cow episodes they had just been going on for a few years at this point okay this is the just barely the prehistory of the internet it's hard for potentially a fair bit of our audience who may be as we intended getting into this industry and are getting context for a lot of the things that happened before and they're working with the underpinnings of what they're working with may not have been alive when this happened let alone you know conscious enough of it to know what the world was like back in the early 90s yeah yeah <laughs> i think the biggest piece of technology i was handling at this time was like an original Nintendo. yeah I mean, this was pretty close to when I first got on the internet with, uh, and it was because a friend of mine was on Usenet. Oh, okay. And I would go over and hang out in his basement and we'd screw around on Usenet for hours at a time mm. when we weren't playing computer games. So the exact time I wasn't able to nail down from the account, but it was around six, somewhere between six and seven, mm. um, where everybody was meeting up in the food court of the Pentagon City Mall. And there, doing their thing they're talking there's a guy uh craig neerdorf who's handing out flyers for for to get people to join the computer professionals for social responsibility mm -hmm. um which is a now apparently defunct organization at least their website hasn't been updated since 2008 oh, really? uh, <laughs> uh, i was going to give them a plug in this episode if they were still yeah. active but i tried their their join membership page and it went nowhere so yeah, yeah. <laughs> But their website's still online. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, and then a bunch of mall cops come in and start demanding to search things, asking for ID. Uh, one guy had a Whisper 2000 that a mall cop said, is that a stun gun? A Whisper <laughs> 2000 is a thing that looks a lot like a Walkman, but is a sound amplification device. Okay. You can get them on eBay. Really, really? Yeah, well, I was trying to figure out what the heck it was. Right, <laughs> and I yeah. found them on eBay. Interesting. Okay. And it, and it looked like the original packaging pictures right there. It looks like maybe a, less like a Walkman and more like a uh, transistor radio of the time, only a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. It was something about the size of a um, of a paperback novel, more or okay. less, uh, with a set of the of the cheapy headphones that you saw in uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Right, right, right. Same kind of headphones that you'd see in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy for, mm. for a more contemporary reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so their stuff was searched. Some of it was taken without receipt. One of the folks that was there, a person by the name of, of Hack Rat, was trying to get the names of everybody based on their name tags. They grabbed the sheet of paper and ripped it up and kept the pieces. Mm. Here's the thing. It wasn't the mall cops really in, in instigating this. At least that's not what some people say. In the Post article, he said that there was a Secret Service agent present with the mall cops. Really? 
Yeah. And um, one of the, the, the hackers present uh, who went by the handle of Mad Hatter, mm-hmm. he and another hacker by the name of Loki called up the mall security the next day to try and get a hold of somebody about like who was present in this and all this. And eventually they managed to squeeze out from the person they finally got connected to after basically frustrating the, the, the lady who was answering the phone, calling back enough times to, and not like stalking her, but like calling back place. So how can everybody be sick? Surely there's somebody that can, you can connect me to that can tell me about, about what's going on here. Right. Um, and so they managed to get, get connected to him, talk for a while. He was being evasive, but eventually let slip his name, Al Johnson. Okay. Now, this has been confirmed as the head of the Pentagon City Mall security at the time. So this is the right guy. Okay. okay. So these being hackers and this being a 2600 meetup, people wrote some of the stuff up emailed some folks, emailed uh, Emmanuel Goldstein, who emailed some other folks. Um, And there was a reporter by the name of Brock Meeks, who called up Mr. Johnson. And in talking to Mr. Johnson, Johnson said, well, this was just an FBI Secret Service thing. You'll have to talk to them. Uh, Okay. And saying they just ramrodded this through. Right, right, right. And uh, unbeknownst to Al Johnson... Brock Meeks was recording the conversation. Mm, So when asked about it later, Al Johnson denied all of this. But Brock Meeks had it on tape. And this became part of the reporting because not only did he have a direct source, but he had it on tape. Mm -hmm. And not only did his his publication, Com Daily, report it, but also News Bites. A few others got a hold of the transcripts, listened to the tape, said this is enough to report on. So we believe we have Secret Service is probably involved, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Which means that there's probably paperwork on it. Yeah, so you could probably FOIA that. Mm-hmm. Well, someone did, and we'll get to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> basically, the story we have right now is basically that the Secret Service used mall cops to get people's identification, to confiscate basically anything that looked hackery a keyboard, mm. a soldering iron, some wiring. Right. Confiscated, no receipt by the mall cops. Now, this is private property, and they could get them to leave. Right. Demanding ID at that point in time was not decided law. It is now, mm. at least for police. Police can absolutely demand your ID. Right. But at that time, that was not decided law, to the best of my understanding. And I'll admit that I didn't go and research that to make sure. I do remember it was a big deal in the 2000s when there was a case basically saying, yes, they can. Mm. And maybe I don't remember, maybe I don't have all the facts on that one, but mall cops certainly don't have police powers. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So basically, they could have asked anybody to leave. It is private property, and that's completely reasonable. And in fact, one of the reports was uh, talked to an uninvolved mall security head who said, yeah, well, if people are congregating, we can ask them to leave, we can ask them for ID. And yeah, that's true, but have you ever had a meetup with like a dozen people at a mall? Because I have. Yeah. Have they ever asked you to leave if you weren't being like noisy and disruptive? Yeah. It's a it's a CYA policy, but it's not normal operations. Right, yeah. yeah. 
So some of the other folks that were there, uh, according to report, by their aliases were Inhuman, Albatross, Psionic Nemesis, Night Lightning, Tomasillus, Dead Cow, Technocaster, and Lithium Bandit. Okay. Just, I figured I'd read off the names that are specifically referred to there, their handles, just so that we're talking about the kind of handles that people had at the time. <laughs> and these were mostly college students and high schoolers, but mm-hmm. not bad. Lithium Bandit, pretty good. That, that was my favorite one of the ones. <laughs> that cow was like close second. Night Lightning, not bad either. <laughs> so remember the Computer Professionals for Social Responsibility? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're the ones that filed the FOIA request. Oh, okay. <laughs> Now, the Secret Service basically said, no, we don't have to, and cited some of the exceptions to FOIA stuff, national security, personally identifiable information, and the Electronic Privacy uh, Information Center, those epic folks that we we talked about, they handled the actual legal side of the case and argued it in federal appellate court. The lawsuit was served in March of 93. And the the full decision was was in January second, nineteen ninety six. Okay. And so they went back and forth with the Secret Service, and the Secret Service was basically told, "No, you have to give up this information." Right. There was some withheld in a July nineteen ninety four decision that said, "Okay, yeah, some of the stuff may have people's names in it, and that's on the list of things you don't have to give up, but you do have okay. to give up something." Yeah. But it tells us that the Secret Service was absolutely involved in this. <laughs> and they absolutely had private citizens who weren't constrained by, by law enforcement rules of engagement mm. go ahead and do their dirty work for them. And those folks overstepped the bounds of what their rights were. Right. If you read through things, rights were asserted. They refused. They, refused, they tried to refuse to, to, to give up IDs. They tried to refuse searches. Right, right. And through persistence, these mall cops got all of this and got, got to search things, confiscated things without receipt. They got to see IDs and, 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 write, and write up all of the um, personally identifiable information. And based on the reading, it was given straight over to the Secret Service. Okay. Basically, seizure of things that the Secret Service knew it couldn't just go ahead and grab without any kind of probable cause. Right. Now, they were doing this probably because they were worried about the hacker menace. You know, at this point in time, somebody might have pulled a, uh, a war games, right? Right, yeah. But it wasn't grounded in any probable cause of anything that was expected to happen or any specific suspicions of anybody that was present there. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's what we believe. Because... Part of the reason we're not telling the government side of the story is I wasn't able to find the FOIA data and other people have tried to get the FOIA data subsequently and been rebuffed. Really? Yes. Actually, I don't have the link of one of them that wrote up the entire exchange with the Secret mm. Service, but the Secret Service is like, no, we don't have to give it to you. You have to file another FOIA request. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying that law enforcement isn't better about their investigation staying within the law. Mm-hmm. But I am saying that there's lots of advice. YouTube's full of lawyers trying to make a name for their practice by giving briefings on what your rights are. And their advice, while not legally binding, you're not their client, is correct about what you need to do to refuse things. You can also find 
law enforcement essentially doing their best not to respect that. There was a big clip one time where somebody had, where the cops were called for some reason. I don't remember all exactly the exact details that the cops came in and they, and, and they needed to make sure everybody was safe. They went and they made sure everybody was safe and they were trying to stick around and question people. Mm. And the guy was, and this is the part that I remember was saying, no, you gotta go. I'm not answering any of your questions. You gotta go. You right. did what you came here to do. We're all agreed that nobody's in danger. Nothing illegal is going on. You gotta go leave. And the cop just wasn't doing it. It's, he called okay. in other folks and yeah, he eventually stepped out, but another cop was there trying to yeah, defuse yeah. the situation, but not actually leave it. Mm-hmm. That's one example, but similar to all of that. If you go and read these things, it's like, no, I'm not, don't need to give you my ID. No, I don't need to give you my ID. No, I don't. Can I leave? And like not being able to, because the way it's supposed to work, if you say, am I being detained? And a cop doesn't say yes, you can walk away. Yeah. <laughs> but they'll try to not let you without yeah, exactly. actually detain without actually forcefully detaining you. Yeah, there's uh, two lawyers that have a, a shut the F up Friday where they, they post on Twitter and it's the two of them basically <laughs> saying the same thing. Like the cop pulls you over, like, you know, shut the F up. Like, am I being detained? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, don't talk. But yeah, yeah, that's very true. Like, you don't, you don't have to answer questions. Like, yeah, to me, the other part of it is just like these folks were detained for a couple of hours mm-hmm. by all of their accounts. It was like two hours before they were able to leave. And it's like, right. even if there was something to it, that's two hours of my time. You're not yeah, entitled yeah, to that. So this is and was seen at the time as an example of police overreach. And we talked about it, I think, on the year end episode about how like the three pillars of the Internet, the public policy, law enforcement side of things has been important. And I believe in it personally. Mm-hmm. Civil rights are rights for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is well after the church committee stuff. Right. And this is in some ways similar activity. They were just breaking things up and letting, or at least a lot of people there specifically said that they took it as being the same kind of harassment of, we know where you are, we know who you are, mm-hmm. know that we're watching you, which, you know, that's Stasi shit right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, although the Stasi, the Stasi brought it to an art form. <laughs> our folks got nothing on that. And maybe yeah. we'll talk about that at some point because that's some amazing stuff. Actually, that would be a good episode for you to do about like the reach of the Stasi in, in the Cold War. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we don't have hacker superheroes in this one, unfortunately, as much as I expected to see it. But an important thing that happened in the hacker ancient history. <laughs> Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.